Hello and welcome to The Thing About Golf, a podcast series from Golf Australia magazine where we explore just what it is that draws people to this, the most maddening stick and ball game of them all. My name's Rod Murray and regular listeners will already know the basic drill for this show. Famous or not, what each guest brings is an interesting tale to tell about their relationship with golf. If you haven't already, pop into the archives and have a listen back to some of our earlier episodes. But if you're already up to speed, strap yourself in, because this episode is truly one from outside the box. Unlike most, today's guest didn't take up the game until he'd already started in the golf business. Also unlike most, he was well into his 50s at the time. But perhaps what truly separates today's guest from all others is that his introduction to golf didn't come until after he decided to build his own world top 100 golf course. Richard Sattler likes to call himself a farmer, and that's a true and accurate description. But Sattler, owner of the Barmboogle Dunes Complex on Tasmania's northeast coast, is oh so much more than that. Despite not being obsessed with the game, or indeed the business, Sattler stands as one of golf's most important people of the past two decades. He takes his place alongside Band and Dunes founder Mike Kaiser and developer of the Sandhills course in Nebraska, Dick Young's cap, the trio showing the way for what golf development could be in the 21st century. On a recent trip to Barnboogle, I was lucky enough to catch up with Richard and get a not insignificant chunk of his time. I could easily have taken twice as much, but when you own two world top 50 golf courses, there's always something to be done. So without further ado, sit back and enjoy what I hope you agree is a fascinating tale about an intriguing man and how he came to own a remarkable golf development. So Richard Sattler, first things first, thank you for taking some time to chat to us. We really do appreciate it. The series is called The Thing About Golf. Your introduction to golf was completely different to most people. So we'll come to that in a minute. But if I were to ask you now, What's the thing about golf 15 years after you opened Barn Boogle Dunes? What would you answer to that question? I'd say it's opened a lot of doors to me. And I always remember Mike Kaiser from Bandon Dunes saying to me, you won't believe how this will change your life. You won't be a farmer anymore. Business, like, business-wise, you mean? For, no, just, a, or just, just life-wise. Okay. Just the whole opening in life and the different um, segment of people that you meet and the different approach to business because otherwise it's very much – treat golf as a business rather than a mm-hmm. game that I loved because I didn't play it. So it had to be a business firstly. And it just all of a sudden I found I was meeting people I'd never thought I'd meet and doing things I never thought I'd do, And but and I still enjoy the farm. Owning a 36-hole golf complex, so we'll come to all that. For those who might not be familiar with the story, remind us how you came to be in golf. Really, I, was, I suppose it's the... The opportunity I had when I bought this rural property 30 years ago and I'd always thought, oh, well, there's eight kilometres of beachfront and one day it'll grow into something. There's not much beachfront left in the world that you can get your hands on. And that one thing just happened to be golf and a young bloke came to me and wanted to lease it and it turned out he didn't have any money and didn't have the ability to put it together. And I met Mike Kaiser from Ben and Junes in Oregon, who based in Chicago, and then Tom Doak and Mike Clayton and eventually they talked me into it mm-hmm. and basically the one that really 
took me into it as my Kaiser and has been my, has been my mentor That's since. That's right. A, a very successful businessman who's yeah. telling you as a fellow businessman, you might not know golf, but I'm telling you it can be successful. Absolutely. Here. He yeah. said, come to Bandon. He went on over there. He introduced me to all his operations and his financials and said, this is how it works and this is how you should do it. And we just Australianised that American version and we got it right. We'll come to some of the keys to the success of Barnboogle uh, later on. What had been your relationship with golf, in it, if any at all, prior to that? There's a lot of people who don't play golf who have a very fixed image of what golf is like. Were you one of those or did you have no particular? Well, I, I played a bit of sport when I was younger, but golf was always seemed to be a little more exclusive. But the biggest thing was it was quite expensive and very time-consuming. And um, as a young bloke with nothing, I had to work six days a week to try and get a start. So... Really, it was the time constraints and the financial constraints that stopped me ever taking an interest. And so I'd never got around to anything to do with golf. And so this young bloke comes to you, he says, you're sitting on a property here, which could be an amazing golf course. Turns out he's got no money to do it himself, but you've kind of been drawn into it a bit now. You meet these other people who know about golf who tell you the same thing. At that time, what were you expecting to get from golf? Was it simply a business opportunity to you at the moment? We'll come to what it might have developed into later. Mm. Was it just the business opportunity? Was it... Was there any thought about perhaps a legacy or a being out? Because you were in hotels as well as farming, weren't yep, you? Yep. Pubs and that yeah, pubs and accommodation it's a, mainly. It's a very different business to that, isn't it? In a lot of ways. Well, it's a funny because it's a combination. Like the the growing of the grasses and getting the turf right is very much related to farming, and the the rest yeah, of the ho- yeah. hospitality is very close to hotels. So, so you weren't out of your the comfort combination. Zone, I no, I wasn't out of my comfort okay. zone. So, with a hospitality and farming background. I knew there were a few shortcuts in when we started in relation to irrigation and things like that that were shortcuts without uh, doing any damage. So I sort of had a feeling that it was something that I could do and probably one of the really final things was Mike Kaiser saying, look, this could be world-class, whereas I thought it might be sort of up in the top 20 in Tasmania. He said it could be world-class. And I <laughs> said to my wife, I said, look, I would hate to go to my grave thinking I could have done something that did leave a legacy that I wasn't quite game to. I wasn't game to put it on the line at the time when uh, putting it on the line was a big call in those days because it was an all and unknown. I could have done the lot. So, yeah, it was... With no skin in the game of golf, that's an interesting attitude, I guess. Because you're leaving a legacy in a game that at that time had no real bearing on your life, I suppose. Well, it had no bearing, but what it was, it gave me a great opportunity to learn the right way first up. It's just like on the farm. If you get a, a tractor driver that comes in and says he's driven everything, he's usually driven nothing and he's no good. <laughs> but if he comes and said, I've never done anything, you can teach him your way. And it's really that same okay. fundamental that I was prepared to learn from very smart blokes very early in the piece. At any stage during that process, did you second-guess yourself? Did you think to yourself, why did I get involved in this? Or from the beginning, has it been? Mm, probably only once or twice a day. <laughs> for the first 10 years? Yeah, for the first 10 years, yeah. I'm starting to settle down now. Right. Um, you touched on it earlier. Golf's obviously become something quite different. When was the first time, after deciding to build the first course here at Barnburgers, when was the first time you picked up a golf club? And how did that come about? And we'll talk about some of the golf you've experienced since because – You've got a bucket list that most people would be pretty pleased <laughs> yeah. with, I would think. I think the, when we were building it, Gary Dixon, who was one of the original minority shareholders, sent down a, about a 1,000 balls that had been falsely corporately badged and hadn't been finished off and hadn't been given the last coats of lacquerings and just go out and hit a few of those around. Well, I think we lost the 1,000 in the first two weeks. 
And I thought, this game is impossible, <laughs> especially trying to lift that ball over that first sure. 50 metres of Not to be Marum. indiscreet. What sort of age were you when you... I think I oh, would have been um, late 40s. Right, late to take up golf. It's a specific sort of a move, isn't it? Oh, Very yeah, hard well, to really, By the time we built it here, yeah, I was really in the 50s by the time we opened it, yeah. so yeah. And were you hooked by the game? Did you like the game? Some people try and go, oh, I can't imagine why you would ever do that. And some people probably go, oh, I'm going to master this one day. Which one? Well, you? a lot of people say it's almost a disease. No. I haven't caught it. Okay. You've got a healthy relationship? I've got a healthy relationship uh, with golf. I don't play it. It doesn't worry me at all. And everyone said you'd be out every night. And I think, oh, no, I'm too tired to go and do something like that. <laughs> but the less you play, the more frustrating it becomes. So I just don't know where the happy medium is. Yeah, of course. What sort of standard do you play to now? Oh, very poorly. Uh-huh. You'd only have to ask a bloke like Mike Clayton. He could tell you how poorly I do play, yeah. <laughs> well, to a bloke like Mike Clayton, we all play poorly. So that's not <laughs> really that fair, I is say, it? That's exactly I shouldn't right. let that bring me down. <laughs> no, no, that, you shouldn't let that bring you down. Of course, Mike Clayton's one of those fantastic people who doesn't care. Yeah, you can he play golf with yeah. him. He doesn't care if you take 50 shots to get to his third. I know, but he doesn't care, but you do. You do, of course <laughs> you do. Yes, you it's, see it. uh, it's a masculine, yeah. isn't it? Um, given that unusual relationship you've got with the game, and you do have here a, a truly – you've done something quite important for golf, and you've been part of a movement, as it turns out, in hindsight, away from what golf was in the 80s and 90s in many ways, housing developments, real estate-driven, profit – for-profit, create a retail golfer, golf carts, a whole culture that there's a bit of pushback against now. You wouldn't have known that at the time, I'd imagine, but where do you feel about that now? Because you've experienced, as we said, a lot of golf courses. It didn't take me long to learn, but I'd always said wherever I'd been and being in sort of the hotel game and the property development, I'd seen a lot of golf courses in the mainland that actually were housing developments and how fast, when once it opens and the profit's taken – they deteriorate and there's a lack of interest in them. And then I could see how, from the younger days, that golf was quite expensive. So you talk to people and they're a member somewhere and they're only playing three or four times a year. And if you play a public access course, you're going to play cheaper games for your dollar. So there was clearly, and talking to my Kaiser, there was clearly a trend away from the commitment. And I suppose it relates to just the changing environment with people just don't go to a holiday home each year. They'll go on different holidays all the time. So using all that knowledge that I'd gained probably in the hotel industries about destinational travel and all that sort of thing, put that over the top of the golfing game, I thought well, there was no use going with members. We were better off to keep it separate, no members, pay for your play. You haven't got commitments to anyone else or a few minor shareholders are left after a few years. So it was just 100% family-owned and if you sell houses, you've... You've sold the block around, you've got intrusions with the farm, it works really well with the farm and we've got no intention of selling anything off and we've, I don't know how many times we've knocked back potential sales and we could make a lot of money but mm. I always say that money is not the most important thing in the world but it is up there with oxygen. <laughs> it's in the top two. <laughs> it's in the top two with oxygen. <laughs> alongside, alongside oxygen. Given all that, we're sitting here in, in what is clearly one of the world's top 100 golf facilities and yet... It is everything but what people expect and think about as golf. You can wear jeans and a T-shirt out there and play if you want. I'm not sure you can go in bare feet, but you can probably negotiate it with you if you wanted to. No, I have actually developed some rules to to set a standard of the people that come. Like we always say you need a collared shirt. Okay, so not T-shirts. But but not T-shirts, and you've got to be respectably dressed because – the trouble is if you don't have any standards at all, the louts come along and they're no fun because we're all about everyone having fun and appreciating what we've got. 
So you can only go to a certain standard before they don't really appreciate it, and we're trying to avoid those sort of people. It's fair to say it's more lax than many people would expect, I think. Oh, absolutely, more casual. It's like, I always say that as a younger bloke, I didn't have a lot of things, but I knew how to have fun, mm-hmm. and have fun means not too many rules, mm-hmm. a bit of a laugh if you want to have a drink or you want to do something. And the less rules you can have and the less signs you have and less disciplines you can have, but still keep a healthy standard the more fun people have. Without ruining it for everybody else. Without ruining it for everyone else. And that was the thing that we had to put back in what stand we went to to stop ruining it for the others. There's an attitude amongst the staff at the facility here. This is, I think, my fifth visit. I was just saying to someone earlier, I don't think I've ever hit off at my actual allotted tea time. There's a wonderful Mm. freedom about the place. Is that a deliberate thing or is it just a culture that's grown because of the nature of the property and your own management style? No, you're the only one allowed to do that. <laughs> I'm special. You're special. So finally, I'm special. Yeah. No, look, we try and make it as flexible as we can. In peak season, yeah, we've got to run a lot tighter to the schedule. We try and keep a gap in tea times. We don't try and close it right into sort of the bare minutes so that we have got flexibility. And if everyone's moving well, well then you can let someone go off the back if it suits or squeeze a couple extra in. So we try and make it as flexible as possible, but still want people to, to plan ahead so that we know what's happening. Yeah, but if there's, if there's a vacancy and someone's ready to go, then they, they can go. And that, and that just doesn't happen, as you would know, at a lot of other places. You yep. mentioned it before. The game's opened a lot of doors. Let's yep. talk about some of those doors. It's probably, uh, and it's not just in golf, it's in all sports. You sort of recognise to someone that's, made a commitment to a sport, so you looked at it a lot differently, whether it be in tennis or football or whatever. You're always, because sporting people sort of have got a common interest and you tend to, you meet more sporting people that appreciate what you've done. So, yeah, it's quite amazed me, especially great context out of football because we always are pretty keen Hawthorne support or mm-hmm. the boys come down in there and they buy a week and have a bit of fun, so you sort of get fairly close to the club and the players and everything and had a lot of other clubs now do the same thing. There's been a lot of celebrities come through the place, really, hasn't there, over the years? Because a, golf's a game that a lot of people are drawn to, have those high-pressure, high-profile kind of jobs. Yep. Golf's a wonderful getaway for a lot of them. And mm. This has been a wonderful place for a lot of those people to get away. Yeah, and amazing that when you talk celebrities, it's, I always have trouble saying someone's a celebrity because a lot of them that think they're celebrities or not. <laughs> That's right. And the ones that you get a lot of business from that come through here that you wouldn't think were any different to anyone else and then you might hear the name or someone says, Google that name and you're just stunned by what they've done and where they are in the world, especially sort of out of the States, a lot of the businessmen that come out of the States and you don't find out till later that they're flying their private jet in. And it's easier to be anonymously super wealthy in America than it is here in Australia, isn't it? Absolutely. It's, it's they're, super wealthy. they're trying to cut you down here. Yeah. It's up there. They're building they you certainly up. Know, yeah. right. They certainly know. We'll come to whether you've seen any of that as you will. Those of us in golf, this is a discussion I've had with Mike Clayton, feel like you've, made, you've been one of those people who's made a real contribution to the game. Dick Young's cap at Sand Hills, yep. Mike Kaiser with Band and Dunes, and you yep. here at Barnboogle Dunes probably really stand out. I'm guessing it probably wasn't a goal of yours, do you feel or understand the contribution that you've made? No, I'd have to say no. I'd, we did Bill Corr said, look, what I want to do is get you, Mike Kyers, from Dick Young, scap in the same room at the same time and we did that at Sand Hills quite a few years did ago. Did get a photo, Richard? Yeah, they? we've got one. There's one, <laughs> one, in, photo. one, uh, there's one that we Bill Corr took and sent around to all four oh. and so we all had to sign it and each one took a copy of it and it's in the actual... A display cabinet at Lost Farm Fantastic. on the deck at Sandhills. Yeah, yeah. What was that experience like in meeting those people? Because 
you're not a golf outsider in that sense, but for someone who hasn't grown up with a passion and a love and a commitment to the game, as all of those others have done, I imagine you would think and I'm wondering how you feel when you sit and listen to them talking about their um, relationship with the game. Yeah, I find it really interesting when they talk about their relationship, but when they talk golf and golf holes and golf shots all night, yeah, that gets a bit boring. It's enough of that? There's enough of that. Too yeah, yeah it's, golf's a game and it's not meant to take over the world. <laughs> You must hear so much of that here, though. You must see so many people who are completely obsessed with it. There's going to be another 10 of us here tomorrow who are completely obsessed with it. What do you think about that? Why do you think that is? Well, I think, and what I learned in business, you've actually always trying to make the experience better. So as a family, we're so intent on making the, the experience better and always watching to improve and listen and learn that you don't probably sit back and pat yourself on the back at all. You just... Absorb it, and if you see something you need, and a comment was passed to me today, oh, you should do this and should do that. And I said, oh, can't do everything, but there's always ways we're trying to pick and identify the next best thing to do, whether it's to change something on the course, which we hate doing unless we've got the okay from the architects. But you've got an erosion problem here, which is fundamental to all links courses on the coast. Seaside, isn't it? That's what the the seaside, does. and that's, <laughs> and that's the challenge of the elements that amazes me because. In the early days, like farming can be very frustrating, challenging elements, and you put a golf course right on the coast. You've added all these new dimensions to that fight against the elements, and all that people complain because they come down here expecting windy, wild weather, and there wasn't any. They had nice, calm, sunny days, <laughs> and you have to apologise for the weather being so good. But they forget that really, as a as a location, until August, we don't have as much wind as Melbourne. Mm-hmm. But when we do cop wind in those seasonal change, the equinoctial periods, it can be pretty savage. It can blow, yeah. I've been down And here. most people have forgiven us now since King Island opened. Because <laughs> that's right. It's, because it's twice as bad because can, of their location. That's right. You can point to somewhere else and say, yeah. if you think it's no good here, try there. Yeah. What about being surrounded by golf nuts, though, as a non-golf nut? Does that drive you mad sometimes or is it just interesting? People well, are really on a obsessed. Podcasts like this, I can't say it drives me mad. Of course, but yes, you can. it does. Of course, it does. <laughs> yeah, Good, it does. Because so it sometimes, should. yeah, well, I'm sort of just a fundamental bloke, and I just don't get too obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. And when people sort of come up and. Rant and rave how good it is. You're sort of almost as embarrassed as you are if they come and say they don't like the the soup of the day or something like that. Because to try and get the experience complete, you've just got so many facets of it. There's always someone that's not completely happy with everything. That's one thing about life we know. Indeed, there's obviously a free kick for you, Richard. What are the things? What are some of the myths about Barnburgle that perhaps people don't realise until they either come here or after they've been here they go away and they they've seen it in one particular guys or one particular day and it's not usually like that. What do you think of some of the myths that have grown up about the place? Well, I don't think there's that many now because of the, the publicity that there is about, most people have really made up their mind what Barnburgle is going to be like when they get here. Probably not so much out of the States, but within Australia most people, and it's usually looked, succeeded my expectations, but they had an image of what they had to expect and they're probably on the post because... We always promote our images, relaxed and easygoing. And, and um, so, yeah, to pinpoint miss, a bit of a hard one because I only see through my eyes and I don't really see that through theirs as much. The facility itself is interesting. It's almost two different – the golf courses are two different golf courses, obviously, um, both fantastic in their own. And the clubhouse and accommodation experiences at both are very different as well, aren't they? Well, yeah, it was, but that was part of the plan, mm-hmm. like really – uh, Tom Dowick and Mike did a great job here, but we wanted something that um, suited the players that love 
Tom's work, so we needed something discreetly different. Otherwise, by the time we got to plan Lost Farm, I'd seen enough of courses. Most places you go to, like the Irish courses, most locations have got two or three courses, but you only ever hear of one, like Bally Bunyan. Uh-huh. There's a second course there that no one plays much. I said, we can't afford to do that. We've got to have another course right up close to what we have here so we're a destination that's known for both courses, not for one, and there's another one you can play if you've got nothing else to do. So it was really a – the idea was to get a discrete difference in their two architects, which Mike Kaiser, again, advised me really well, mm-hmm. but then also get a discrete difference in accommodation. Uh, we like with the food. If there's people here three nights, they might go to the sports bar, watch a bit of sport, have a pizza or a sandwich one night they come to the Dunes restaurant which is more of a bistro style and then the formal restaurant more formal restaurant at Lost Farm so we've given them three eating styles four or five different accommodation styles two discreetly different golf courses because you you only play golf for four hours a day you want to be entertained so you need something different and enjoyable whilst you're here if we're going to keep them for those two or three days all the time you touch on something very interesting is of course most people come for the golf it's probably an underrated part of the experience, isn't it? My preference has always been to stay at the Dunes. It's the first place I stayed because the Lost Farm wasn't open the first time. And I love the yep. little Brighton beach box accommodation. I'm 50. This suits me nicely. I've been to the sports bar and it's a fantastic experience, but it's a very different thing, isn't it? And that, I wonder what role that plays in how much you feel that helps in bringing people back. I said to one of the guys in the bar when I came in today, it's funny this place. I've only been here five times, but you walk in the door, you feel like you've come home. Mm. It's all recognisable and talk a little bit about the importance of getting those things right, the things outside of the golf holes, which is Mike Clayton's job and Tom Doak's job and Bill Corr's job. The other stuff's been your job, hasn't it? You've really done well. well. To actually, to get people back, repeat business is 80% of our business. It has to be, be, yeah, that's why otherwise we're in trouble. But what I learned in the hotels was that there's so many hotels in every city you go that's just... quick flash of mind which hotel you stay in. So you've got to leave something a little bit more memorable in their mind than the opposition do to keep them coming back to the same location. Otherwise, they'll just try somewhere else or say, oh, look, we'll go Queensland this year or somewhere else. You've got to actually be the first thing they think about. So we've got to make it friendlier. We've got to give them a better variety. We've just got to improve that experience on what we did last year even and what others do. We've just got to, we watch the industry closely to see what everyone's doing. We did have a great story that built a golf course and they'll come, but we've done a lot of homework on the industry and people finding out what their expectations are, especially what makes them want to come back all the time to try and fill that gap in. So our whole business philosophy is listen to the customers and find their needs. I recall putting that proposition to you last time we spoke a few years ago, which was build it and they will come. It's easy Mm. to look at a place like Barnburg and say, all you had to do was build it and it was going to be a success. That really is a myth, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, right in the early days when I realised I'd been a little bit misled about how much it was likely to cost and the procedure to build it. And once I got closer to Mike Kaiser and he let me know that it was really nothing different to building a new hotel or something like that. The, the, you've got to do your homework, you've got to do your feasibilities, you've got to know what your potential markets are. Because without doubt, we missed the market a little bit here when we thought 50% of our business would be local Tasmanian. Mm-hmm. Now we're basically, there's more international than local Tasmanian. So we had a sort of fair idea of what it was likely to be, but we, we weren't spot on. But we, 
I suppose when you own your own business and there's a, an adjustment needs to be made, you can make it. You don't get refer back to a board meeting. If we've got to change a decision today for tomorrow, we do it. The beauty of dictatorship, Richard. Absolutely. Well, I've said Australia run a lot better under a dictatorship <laughs> with only one condition that I'm the dictator. But I was going to say that's exactly right. We all have the same condition. I've got to be the dictator. Yeah. When they say about committees, the best committee is a three-man committee with two away sick. Absolutely. That's when you yeah. start to yeah. get some things done. How different do you think this whole facility might have been? It's probably an unanswerable question, but had you been a golf nut? I, I don't know. I've thought about that occasionally. I don't think I would have been game to build this because most of the golf that I would have seen at that stage would have been more sort of parkland type golf and watching the golf on TV and that sort of thing. So I don't think without any knowledge, I, had it been the other way with knowledge, I would have been a bit nervous about building in the sand dunes so predominantly and so exposed. I would have been looking to go out further up through the farm in some of the beautiful bushland and carve out a course there. So, yeah, that was probably the biggest difference, that the lack of knowledge of golf let me in here. And I suppose seeing a lot of the the pictorials on the Irish and Scottish golf courses and how that this coastal tea tree-type swampy environment matched so many of those courses over there, I thought, well, we can replicate that very easily and try and pick something like, you see, the, the Augustas of the world and that sort of thing. We couldn't replicate that because of the environment here. So it was very easy to say, well... Those links courses were the ones that we could replicate really well. It wouldn't have been difficult to find an accountant to tell you that the best thing to do with the golf here would have been to shift it way back off the coast and put all accommodation and buildings along the spectacular. That tends to have been the trend, doesn't it? You've kind of bucked the trend in that way, and it's been one of the keys to the success of the... Yeah, well, I've been really careful in life. I've made sure that I talk to my accountant first and then do the exact opposite. <laughs> That's right. What does accountant know about? Yeah. Uh, His job's to count it, mine's to make it. Yeah, indeed. Let's run through some of you know, those bucket list courses we mentioned before. There will be golf nuts out there horrified that there'll be courses here they'll never get to see and that you're quite blasé about the game, but you've had the opportunity. What have been some of your favourite golf destinations? And that would be an interesting question for someone who's not taken with the golf. Mm. I suppose we did a trip in through the States and uh, went to Band and then from there we did... Bandon's a sim- – I've not been there. It's a somewhat similar experience to this, isn't it? For years, Mike Kaiser called this ba- Bandon Down Under or Baby Bandon. So, yeah, we did. We've had a great friendship there, children of similar ages and friends, and we went over to Mike Jr.'s wedding in the States or 18 months ago. So there's a really so close – friendship. Great, it hasn't great, just great, been a business. No, nah, so. great relationship. And um, – but you share so somewhat there. of a disease, don't you? You both own golf facilities. Both own golf facilities, <laughs> yeah. Not many people I in the world remember the opening at Lost Farm playing golf and Mike and I were playing Tom Doak and Bill Corr. <laughs> That's fantastic. And coming down the 18th, Mike said, look, we've been screwed over by the architects again because <laughs> we were well behind. <laughs> fantastic. So you've been abandoned. Where else did you go in this? Uh, Pine Valley. Okay. Lucked Pine Valley. What did you um, think of that? As a, as a not particularly good golfer, as you've already said, they say it's one of the toughest tests. It's a tough test. But I think I, I had a caddy that sort of understood and felt sort of quite sympathetic to the causes. <laughs> and, uh, Do you get frustrated Cypress Point? with golf? Are you on- oh, terribly frustrated. Right, okay. So it does yeah. drive you mad. You don't yeah. I stop throwing clubs when I run out. Right, okay. Fantastic. Tommy Bolt, the Tommy yeah. Bolt. Uh, <laughs> so now I've tried now to not let it frustrate me too much. And But if you're trying to work on the farm or you're working around the place, then go and play golf straight afterwards, can't no play. No good. You've got to go out relaxed. Okay. And if you're 
playing on here and you're actually thinking of the business, it's very hard to play well okay. because you're looking, oh, there's someone hasn't put a divot back uh-huh. or something's happened. That's right, yeah. So you're watching the business, like dining in the restaurant. You're watching all the other guests not, not enjoying the see food. what you're doing yeah. and enjoying the food. Yeah. So if I come over here, I've got to try and hide somewhere quietly because if you're sitting around, they work out who you are. Everyone wants to come and have a friendly chat because we're a friendly place, so everyone wants to have a chat. We'll come back to Cypress Point and a few other courses, but there's something in that, isn't there? Every time I've come here, I've seen you here, and I think everybody knows who you are, that you're the owner, Richard, and I think most guests who've come here at some point have had some kind of contact with you. Is that a deliberate thing with you, or is it just a natural? Um, probably, no. I, I try and keep out of it, but it's surprising. You do spend a fair bit of time around and. I usually come down and check everyone in the morning and have a coffee and you meet a lot of people there and I'm a bit of a health kick at present. I haven't spent so much time in the bar. <laughs> so more so, mornings, less evenings. More mornings, <laughs> less evenings. Yeah, so I try to behave myself for a while. Uh-huh. The one thing about it's the hospitality industry and for a bloke like me that loves a drink and a chat, mm-hmm. it's fatal. It can, or can be, be fatal. So it really has I'll, been the end of people in the past. It's it? been the end of people. So I've said, no, I've got to, got to change my lifestyle a little bit if I want to. Live to enjoy it a bit more. Indeed. What do you feel when you walk in here or Lost Farm? Do you, do you ever pinch yourself and think, good God, I own all of this? No, I look at them and say, oh, geez, the mark on the floor there. Who didn't wash that glass? Or that person hasn't been served. So I'd, I'd love to think that, and now as the family are more involved, that I could step back half a step further and enjoy that more. But I come down and you're always looking to improve it. And, and I suppose by nature I've never been one to sort of sit back and sort of pat myself on the back and say, aren't I clever? It's more just say, look, let's do it and make sure it works properly and make sure that money gets through to the bank and watch that bank account and what needs to be done next. So it's very much a business first and a bit of pleasure later. I think I'd enjoy it more if I didn't own it sometimes. <laughs> well, I'm, in, I'm having a great time and I don't own it. If you really want to get rid of it, let me know. And we'll... <laughs> right. <laughs> we'll come back to some of that. I think there's some interesting things in that about I'm always interested in how people end up where they do and how they got there and what shaped mm. them. So we'll come back and talk about some of those things. Finish that list of golf courses because the listeners probably want to hear. So we got to Cypress Point. What did you think of that? Oh, I love that, especially going Why? out on the coast. Because it's dramatic or what was it about? It's thing? dramatic and it was just a – look, if you wanted to pick it apart, you'd say, good, the first hole, where on earth do you hit over a hedge and a bloody main road on your first shot you play? You might have to walk across the road, but they hit across it. I couldn't believe that. But there was just some charm about it, I suppose – the old clubhouse was amazing where they haven't changed anything. And you go around, I think it was 15, 16, 17, mm-hmm. were amazing holes. And I didn't play it very well. And the caddy did let me do a bit of Pele, a bit of kicking. Some of that thick pine scrub stuff was hard to get out of. Yeah. Very easy to get into. It's easy so, to get yeah. hard to get out of. That's yeah, like so, the Australian cricket, cricket team. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Better edit that bit out. Mm. Uh, where else? So you do, where else in the US? And and what are the things that stand out to you? I'm intrigued by somebody who's had access to all of this golf without being the golf nut. Most people who get to Cypress Point, it's been their life's work to, to get to experience it. Um, and I'm interested in – you must have a different reaction to sort of those people. And what well, are the things that yeah. make it for you? Um, I think the comparison to what you've got yourself, and say, well, how's this compare with what we're doing? How's the hospitality compare? So I'm always doing still that can't monitoring. Take a break. You're still yeah. looking for the dirty glass still, at yeah, Cypress Point. That's right, yeah. And yeah. at those places and talking, because it's both Cypress and um, Pine Valley were member introduced. So you're that's usually right. with a member or playing with a member or they're meeting you there or and are hosting you. And they're usually, everyone says, oh, they'll be snobs. And they're the nicest people when you get to know them. And usually I've been pointed in the direct direction of the right person 
So we always have sort of fun there and you're getting to know them as well. So the courses I find hard, but I'm a non-golfer and I find most of the courses hard. And I did actually when we – because each year we try and get over to the States, but it never works out. It's probably every second year. But we caught up with Bill Core over there one year for his core Crenshaw Cup and um, we sort of played Friars Head, Sabonic, East Hampton, a few of the newer courses over there, like – Sabonic's a million dollars oh. to sign up. Like, yeah. it's ridiculous. Well, you only look at the real estate there. Yeah. I think they built it in the last 30 years. is unbelievable. Yeah. And, uh, and the phone never stops ringing when you own your own golf facility? Ringing, yeah, because I did have a meeting. Oh, sorry. Four, I won't try and call four you. o'clock, or it's 10 to 4, so I've got plenty of time. Okay. Um, and those sort of places were amazing because Sabonic, when you look at Nicholas and Tom Derrick's work... In my mind, and I'm not a critic like the others, I thought about the lesser of their best works out, probably working as two together, there'd be that clash that of different personalities. So it was really a, that you see a lesson in that, that to pick an architect, don't try and compromise yeah. your situation because you want to have the best of both architects because you might get the worst, worst of both age. if you're unlucky. Whereas Fry's Head was, was a magnificent course and it's a core Crenshaw course and... I played with Bill Core on that course and we had a great day. <laughs> so I did have a few. I didn't need a caddy that day. No, no, <laughs> I right, get some you, pretty good advice. You get some good advice. And, about um, so, like uh, the friendship between Bill Core and meeting Ben because he doesn't travel much, but catching up with him a bit over there, like they're, you're meeting absolute gentlemen. They're masters of their trade, but they're gentlemen with it. And it just it makes so much fun that you, you get the introduction through them and you're always welcomed into the place and like. I've played quite a few of the core Crenshaw ones, Colorado Country Club, and they're just so friendly because they're used to the sort of atmosphere we've created here. So they re- recuperate, re- return the hospitality, I should say, and uh, so you see the certainly see the best of it. Mm. And um, we've away from the states. What do you, I want to come to some of that other stuff, and we know we're under some time pressure now. Tell me in the UK and where in the world you think your five favourite golf courses are, and why? Um, golf experiences is probably a better term. Probably one of the best golf experiences and I wasn't playing. I was watching Adam Scott win the Masters. Gold. And we'd sort of been in a position where Daughters does a lot of marketing and works on a lot of the um, international marketing for Tourism Australia and she had a meeting a lot of press there and um, the last minute she realised that we didn't have any tickets and luckily Adam... At the last minute. At the last minute. You can't well, sack your daughter, unfortunately, but that's no. a sacking offence, surely, at the last minute. Or oh, two weeks out, anyway. <laughs> right, okay. So... Um, in the end, we got tickets from Adam, so it was kindly oh, okay. organised at time there and some nice lunches and experiences there, and we followed him around. He won, so yeah, that was that that's was probably the great golf experience of the time because that's a great sport experience. That was Australia's last uh, sporting mountain. Absolutely. By then, we knocked off the Tour de France. It yep. was the only thing left was the Masters yeah, for yeah, Australia in a sporting yeah, sense. And it wasn't. It was special. It was special, and to be there and. With Adam and his father, and it was Fantastic. just, yeah, it was an amazing experience and on an amazing course. And what a job he but did as an ambassador after absolutely. that. Absolutely, and, and probably mind saying he's just an absolute gentleman. And not just because well, yeah. he comes down here sometimes. Not just because he comes down here and sings their praises, no, but he's just a great no, bloke. No, he does, yeah, he's a terrific bloke. Mm. I'm very interested, Richard. I get the feeling, and I've never delved into this with you, from what you said earlier, working sick days. Would we call you a self-made man? What was your no, no, when, I, when I met my wife, we had $1,000 between us, so okay, we had to start. Yeah. How much did she bring? Uh, 990 <laughs> 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 Yeah, 
Yeah, no, we no, I had nothing when we grew up. I could sort of, father had been a prisoner of war and a pilot in the war and been Tasmania. shot down. Yeah, Tasmania. And, yeah, and he had sort of tough life, really tough life. Uh, so yeah, when I decided to go into business, we had a bit of a rural background, but I had to start from scratch and went through sort of truck driving and pubs and all sorts of things on the way through. Did you so, think early on that you'd always want to have your own business or were you one that thought you would work for other people and have a career that way? Did you? Yeah, I didn't think I'd that? have my own business until I was about seven. Right. Then I decided. <laughs> Quite a late start of it. Late start, yeah. <laughs> at five, I thought I might work for someone else, but yeah, at seven, right. I decided that wouldn't work. Right. What do you think that's about? Where do you think that comes from? That's kind of important if you're going to do what you do. It's a drive, I think. Um, I got a, when I was my trade was wool classing, so I was working around stud out as a rouseabout and shearing sheds mm-hmm. before I went into business. What does that teach you? That teach you hard work and discipline. Everyone, there's a lot of young blokes could do to. And my wife always says the same. Young blokes should be have to work in a shearing shed, and and young girls should have to work as nurse or nursing aid with us that heavy discipline and you can't just stop and you can't just drop your bundle all of a sudden. If your pressure's on you, you keep working. And um, I think that gave me the drive and then seeing the successful farmers and how what a great lifestyle they appeared to have on yeah, later it's nowhere near as good as what it looked. But it just gave me the drive to instead of being jealous of someone that was successful to actually go out and do it for yourself. Mm. So, it's an interesting sort of character trait, isn't it? And I've my dad was a bit similar. He was a self-made man. He was, a, he was an immigrant. He came from Italy. He didn't speak yep. the language and ended up owning his own business and put us through school and bought his house, all those sorts of things. And I often felt like he, there was something that drove him that didn't allow him to enjoy it as much as he could have or should have. Do you feel that sometimes? Yeah, I do sometimes, yeah. and Because um, there's a constant fear, isn't there, that one mm. day you might end up back where you started. Yep. You just don't ever... Just the fear of failure is terrible. Mm. But I'm interested in that, Richard, because, well, you said you're in your... So you must be approaching 70s. Yeah, 68. Yep. Okay. And so perspectives on life change and everything that mm. you've done and you think about how you've done and what you might do differently and what, what sort of advice might you give to your kids who've had a very different upbringing to what you had, obviously. Mm. Uh, from the outside, it's easy to look and go to Sattlers. How easy have they got it? Is that, is that true? Is that right? Oh, what no. do people not realise? They didn't realise that even though I'd worked high up through the business, I got caught in the pilot strike and then the recession back then and I just bought Barn Burglar and it very nearly sent me broke. I had to hang on for dear life. And um, so, yeah, it's only been the last probably 10 or 15 years where we've, we've looked prosperous. Where, so, you sort of, yeah, I'd say to young people, just don't forget to enjoy life but keep your eye on the ball. Mm. And I probably was trying to expand a bit too fast, like most people in the eighties. And but I knew where I wanted to go, and it was out of business, the hospitality business, back to farming. I didn't pick my timing very well, and got caught moving out into farming when I still hadn't sold my hotels. So yeah, timing's everything in business. You don't have to be perfect business, and but you need to get your timing right. They're easy mistakes to make, aren't they? They're easy mistakes to make, yeah. Particularly in a bubbling economy. We saw yep. it just before the crash in 08. Absolutely. People tell you, you're mad if you weren't gambling everything on this. And, yep. of course, two weeks later, people say, you were mad to gamble on that. was a crazy Absolutely, thing to do. Absolutely, yeah. I've been told when I was a kid to buy in fear and sell in greed, but you don't, when you're, you're moving fast, you don't always think of that, and you always think that it's going to keep going up, so the timing's not quite so important, but... It is, and that's why I say to the kids, you've just got to watch, look back through our history. They were too young, or the two eldest were 
old enough to realise how tough it can be and the youngest won't. Not just say, don't take your eye off the ball because it's a lot easier to lose than it is to make. Do your kids listen to you? They do, actually, yeah. That's quite rare. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well done. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that, uh, I think because I've seen enough of it and, yeah, they, they sometimes know a bit more than you do, but they, I think they still do listen. Yeah, indeed. So we've got a great rapport with the kids. Yeah, so. but they're all involved here in the business. They're all involved here. Yeah, the youngest one has just followed her heart to Hobart. She still sort of does a bit of photography work for us and that sort of thing and loves the farm. Yeah, indeed. Uh, last couple of things. Every golfer in Australia who's been here and loves the place wants to know, when are you building the third course, Richard? Don't tell us that you're not. When are you building the third and the fourth and the fifth? Right. <laughs> yes, the fourth and fifth. I remember doing an interview once that most people have seen but mightn't realise which one it was. I said, ah, no, I don't think I will. I said, cut, we don't. That sort of crap we want to know when you're building it. So really is, that... Is it a possibility? Oh, you, it's definitely a possibility. You've got enough space, clearly. We've got, we've got enough space, about 300 more, I think, so we probably won't build all them. No. Um, I did look at building one inland out of the wind a bit, but What's all, all the research said that yeah, you can build a good course, but you can't build a great course. People want to be by the coast. So really, the I suppose, watching the market and seeing which way the trend goes and how the economy goes before you spend big bucks is the most important thing. Otherwise, it'd be the third course would be further east than Lost Farm. You mentioned a couple of times the number of US visitors you get here, and international visitors, it's, and mm. it does attract people from all around the world. What's been the contribution of Barn Boogle Dunes, do you feel, to Tasmania? There'll be all sorts of official reports about this and that and the other, but there would be people in the world who never would have heard of Tasmania if this place hadn't been here, let alone come here. Yeah, well, it was amazing because in the early days, people had heard about Barn Boogle, and did, but didn't, uh, they knew roughly where it was, but they didn't know where Tasmania was. Tanzania and all sorts of things we'd get, but they had, a, they knew the word barn burgle and they knew it was golf courses. So I reckon we did a lot for Tasmania, and I think it's well acknowledged by the government as well that we created a position where Tasmania, along with probably two other major properties, which was Sapphire down the east coast and Mona Museum, Museum yeah. that really actually put Tasmania on the map in their fields that turned the tide from where you didn't have to apologise for being a Tasmanian anymore. A destination needs more than one attraction, doesn't it? Absolutely, and the Gold Coast proved that. To, well, the family market went to Gold Coast en masse when there were about three of these theme parks and all good ones, and then everyone can live off that. But you've got to have something that's good enough to catch people's eye. Yeah, there's a lesson for that in golf too, isn't there? The golf courses actually, whilst they're competition, they don't really compete because rising tides lifts all boats and people will go to a golf destination that's got more courses rather than Absolutely, less. looking at the... The McDonald's and KFC and pizzas of the world proved that. They all line up in the same street and all live really well off each other and because the market goes to that. Yeah. So well, really... Richard, you bring an extraordinary homespun wisdom to golf, which is refreshing and fantastic. And not being a golf nut, I think, has been a fantastic contribution to what you've got here and what this has given to golf more generally. So as golfers, we thank you. And I know you've got work to do. I appreciate you taking some time to chat to me, even though you're under some pressure. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you, Rod. Well, I don't know about you, but I could have easily listened to Richard Sattler talk for another 40 minutes. What a contribution to the game he's made. And while he acknowledges it himself, I wonder whether, as essentially a non-golfer, he can really appreciate the gift that he has given us all. Affordable, accessible, world-class golf right here in our own backyard. And I'm sure many golfers join me in saying a genuine thanks. Well, from world-class golf built by a non-golfer, to judging world-class golf as a lifelong golf tragic. 
Join us next time on The Thing About Golf when we meet Paul Daly, publisher of some of the game's best-known and most beautiful golf course architecture books. <laughs>